There's a big debate about whether tongues have ceased, but shouldn't we first figure out what tongues are and why God sent them? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Many theologies want to say, oh, the Bible says this and the Bible says that about things that, that it doesn't really speak on or it doesn't say what they say that it says. But one of the most blatant examples of just twisting the scriptures is what Pentecostalism does about tongues. They come up with this idea because of what happened at Pentecost where people spoke in, you know, in tongues and then people heard in their own language that this is, this is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This is the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we should be seeing that in churches now. But what does the Bible actually say about tongues? What are they and, and why did God give them? So the, the New Testament discussion of tongues more or less starts with that story from Acts 2. But then it's a major feature that Paul is dealing with in many of his letters. He gives instructions to the churches for how to handle this, what it means. And so we're, we're going to spend the podcast sort of breaking that down. And one of the things to say just about the narrative, about the story, is if you look at that as the defining event or the orig original event of Pentecostalism, what happened there at the day of Pentecost is nothing at all like what actually happens in a Pentecostal church. The speaking in tongues that happened in Jerusalem in Acts 2 is not the sort of speaking in tongues that happens in a Pentecostal church. The function was different. The modes are different. Everything about it's different. So you can't look back to that and say that they're the same thing. And then it becomes a question of, well, if they're not the same thing, is what happens currently in a Pentecostal church actually even a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And so I think what you need to go is where Paul's talking about what tongues look like in the church rather than what happened at Pentecost, because what they're doing is they're exercising it in the church. And, and what happened at Pentecost was, was something very different, and the use of the tongues was for a different purpose than why the Pentecostals are using unknown tongues in their churches. I mean, and one of the things I think that's really key here, because, I mean, I grew up I grew up in very Baptist churches. We didn't do, there was no speaking in tongues. There was no real issue with that. But we also really didn't know how to think about it. We pretty much just ignored it. It was something that we pretty much just said, Pentecostals do this. We don't agree with it. But we're also not going to talk about it. And there's this part of it where you look at, I mean, the day of Pentecost was an important thing. Jesus Christ coming was an important thing. And one of the big things we talk about in this episode is Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of Satan. He came to destroy sin. He came to do a real thing. And the fact that this is a part of it is kind of missing from our, the we're not, we're not tying that into the theology. We're not tying that in so that we understand how tongues relates to sin. And if you don't understand that, if you don't connect those things, then you don't, you just see it as this thing that he did to make it special. And God wasn't just, he wasn't like just setting off spiritual fireworks. And I think that's it's a, a real, show, right? I mean, that's that's, that's, how, that's how Pentecostalism usually does it. It's a way to attract eyes on people, right? And that is not what the Holy Spirit does. That's not the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, and I think you know, one of the things I've heard you say a number of times, and it's really been useful for me, is where you've kind of said tongues were given because of unbelief. And that a ground, and it's a really interesting, it's a useful grounding statement because when you hear that, you go, "What?" 
but this is what Paul talks about, and and it's and there's this. I mean, it's it's a completely different argument than you usually hear anybody say, but it really starts to reset the way you think about this. So we'll build that argument, right? We're gonna we'll go through the the text and and build that argument to show the tongues are a sign of unbelief. But if you start there, if you say tongues are a sign of unbelief, then it's really hard to it's really hard to look at a church practice that says that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is to have a church filled with people who speak in tongues. Right. That that you you have to do a complete reset on that. That just those those both can't be true. And so either either we're going to be wrong about what scripture says or you have to bend to the word of God, obey that and then reorder your church practices. And so part of it is and we're going to kind of jump into the middle of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14 where he actually makes that statement. And to understand that argument, you need to understand that what happened at Acts was a fulfillment of prophecy. And that's part of the argument that Paul is making is tongues are a sign of unbelief because that's what the prophecy says. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 23-22, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. And so Paul's going, you, there's not this huge discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. People want to act like the, the tongues are something new in the New Testament. No, they were prophesied in the Old Testament that God would send tongues. He would have people talk in other tongues to show that Israel was filled with unbelief. And so the people are going, oh, look at Pentecost. It's wonderful. All these people heard in their own language. No, there's a reason why when Peter says, you killed the Christ, they all started mourning and were afraid because God said, when you hear tongues, this is what it means. It means that you're under judgment. So Paul's quoting, with, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. That's from Isaiah. But what he says at the bottom is, therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. And so part of what you have to do to think about these things properly is for a lot of people, for me, I had to disengage from my mind what I thought about when I think about spiritual gifts. Because, you know, when I think about these things, like I think of prophesying as always telling the future. And prophesying is not telling the future. It is it is declaring the knowledge and the glory of God, the knowledge of the glory of God, right? He I mean, it completely ties it in First Corinthians fourteen with edifying the church. Right. So it's it's declaring who God is. At times, some prophets have declared what He would do, but the point is, it's speaking words about who God is, so that the church is built up. Right. That's what prophecy. And is. so and so, it's not. These are not. He's not talking about two supernatural things. He's not talking about, you know what I mean? He's not, he's not. And, and, or they and, are both supernatural. And I understand, but what I mean is, is they're not miracles. And, and the way people think of miracles, The way people yes. think of miracles. And so, and that's what I mean is, is it's, it's, you, we have this thing where we've put these into these hard categories and we've defined them really strictly. And those things don't mesh with how Paul is using the terms. That Paul is talking about things, the use of something, the function of something, what it does, what it allows you to do, what it allowed God to do. And the reason why it's a sign is because of what these things mean. And so I think this is really useful as you go to this, as you go and start walking through this, to, it's a level set 
in how to think about what God is doing. Because what happens in Pentecostalism is they exalt, you know, basically three things, but one of them never really happens except in a show, right? Which is healing. Healing almost never happens that, you know, you know, even Benny Hinn's nephew now is coming out and saying that they had never healed a single person. If you were actually sick and you were coming up to Benny Hinn, they would chase you off because you didn't want, you, you need people that can be fake right? so that they look like you did something. And so, but then the other two are prophecy, but it, they would say it's foretelling. And then the other one is speaking in tongues. And so they would almost always tie speaking in tongues and foretelling really tightly together. That person who can speak in tongues, then you should believe when he tells the future. And both of them are using these terms in a way that Paul didn't mean at all. And this isn't what Paul was talking about when he talked about prophecy. He was talking about edifying the believers. When you say you're going to get a new car next year, that's not about edifying the believers. That's not about building them up. That's not about it's, – it's understanding who God is that builds up the believers. And so Paul says you prophesy to edify, and their prophecy has nothing to do with edifying. And then their, their speaking babble has nothing to do with tongues. But yet they go, we're the Pentecostals. We're the ones that are embracing what happened at Pentecost. And the reality is they're rejecting what happened at Pentecost. And we should put a link in the episode below because, I mean, we spend a chunk in the episode on translations talking about how even just the fact that languages are confused, that there are different tongues, goes back to sin in the world. It goes back to the Tower of Babel. It goes, and there's just this part of it where we've, we've lost that idea. And it's useful if you want to think about that more before you listen to this, you want to jump over there, you want to listen to it later. It's really useful to think about those things because if you, if you think of tongues in the wrong way, you're going to keep stumbling over this. I think we should go back to what Paul is referencing and kind of walk slowly through Isaiah 28 because Isaiah 28 is what he's quoting from. And part of the reason that people get tongues wrong is they get their eschatology wrong because it's directly tied to eschatology because they can't accept what God is saying happened at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost is what Paul's saying is these faithful people at Jerusalem, right? The Bible tells these devout men that were abiding in Jerusalem. You know, God's saying by having them speak in tongue, they're not believers because tongues are given for unbelievers. And so it's a sign of judgment on Israel and a sign of judgment on the Jews. But yet, if your eschatology is the Jews are the chosen people of God and God is not replacing them, then you're stuck in this idea that, that well, that can't be what that is. But that's exactly what God says that it is. And that's what Paul says it is. It's a sign for unbelievers. That's why it happened at Pentecost, because it's a sign for unbelievers. So let's read from Isaiah 28, starting in verse 2. And this is a pretty long passage, and it takes a while to be developed. But this is what Paul's quoting from in 1 Corinthians 14. And he's not using it any differently than Isaiah was using it. So you have to understand the context of Isaiah so you can see this is about the judgment on Israel. So Isaiah 28 says, Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong wind, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. So he's starting out by saying, I'm going to judge Israel. Now he judges Israel with Assyria, and then later he judges them with Rome. But he's saying, I'm going to judge Israel. And he's going to judge Israel because of what they do with his word. So it says, the crown of pride, 
the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And so the whole idea is, and this is what's happening at Pentecost, the whole idea is, is that he's going to come and have people speak in an unknown tongue so that you know that Israel was rejected, you know that the Jews were rejected, and that is now a remnant that is going forward which is exactly what happened with Christ. Christ takes a remnant out of the Jews, just like the Jews were a remnant out of Israel. He takes a remnant out of the Jews that are faithful. And so one thing that you see with the tongues is it is about declaring who, that you all think you're believers and you're not. It's about creating this separation between those who believe and those who don't. It's about setting up a remnant. Are you saying that the end that day is referring to Pentecost specifically then? in that day is referring to when Jesus Christ comes and when Jesus Christ is resurrected. So I don't think it's talking about the specific day of Pentecost. It's more talking about that period. What happens with that period is he's showing that his hand of wrath is against Ephraim, his hand of wrath is against Judah, and that he is separating off a remnant to himself. So I don't think it's specifically talking about a day as much as it is that's what he's doing in the day when Jesus Christ, after the resurrection. So, for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priests and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision, they stumble in judgment, for all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. When Jesus Christ comes, right, and the people who exalt Israel, they almost always end up exalting the Pharisees as these great fonts of knowledge, and they exalt. And they weren't. They didn't understand any of it. God is looking at these people that the people, you know, I know that like in um, – Southern, not Southern. What's the one down in Southeast. Southwest? Oh. In Southwest Seminary, they have, they've had rabbis come in to teach because rabbis understand the Bible better than Christians do. That's like completely the opposite of what, what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying in that day, in the day that Christ comes, he's looking at the, the priests. He's looking at the Pharisees. He's looking at the Sadducees. And he's saying these guys are like drunkards that are vomiting all over the table. That's how he's looking at them. So this is the context that he sends tongues as he's not looking at him and going, oh, look, these are the devout men who abide in Jerusalem that came to Pentecost. Wow, these are the holy men. He's looking at him and saying, you're a bunch of drunkards that can't think, you can't react, you're just vomiting all over the place. Right? I mean, when you think about the language, the language isn't subtle here. And this is what the Pentecostals are adopting and saying, this is what our churches should be like. And God's looking at them just like he did at Israel and going, you're just like the same drunkards that the Pharisees were. And it wasn't that they were physically drinking as much as this is what God is saying. This is how they're thinking. This is how they're acting. You know, it's not that, that they're actually drinking the wine, right? I mean, it's symbolic. It's, it's uh, metaphoric language. Who will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? 
those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts. So people misinterpret this next part because he's saying these Pharisees that everybody wants to go, look at all the knowledge that they have. He's going, whom will he teach knowledge? Who will God teach knowledge to? Who's going to have any understanding? Will it be those who just, you know, whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from the milk, those just drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And people embrace this concept now that go, oh, I'm just supposed to advance in theology slowly. This is a rebuke where they're going, yeah, I'll we'll get there. That's, that's too complicated of a subject. I'll get to that later. I mean, that's specifically what God is judging them for. They have the Bible in Hebrew, and they go, we can't understand it. We're just, we're, we keep reading it. We get a little bit more. We get a little bit more. And he's looking at him and going, I told it to you plainly, and you're going, we can't understand it. How will he teach knowledge if he's given them the Hebrew Bible and they can't understand it? All they say is, yeah, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there. For 1,400 years, they say, we're getting there, we're getting there. And they never get anywhere. They never listen to Isaiah. They never listen to, to, to Moses. And so he's looking at him going, you don't understand anything. And the, the reason why this is such a rebuke and why it's so closely tied to the subject at hand is the reason they can't understand anything is they don't have the Holy Spirit. Right. And so, and this is tied to when you get to tongues and all these things, it's what did the Holy Spirit come to do? One of the things is to teach you all things, right? It is that you can't, because they're reading this thing, and the reason why the rabbi doesn't understand the Old Testament is because he can't understand spiritual things. He can't understand things that must be spiritually discerned, and they couldn't either. And you can look at them and go, well, of course they couldn't. But the answer is, is the people of God have the Holy Spirit. They, The Holy Spirit did give that. You read David. David, David understood God's law. Right. Those who were had, who were who who had been circumcised in their heart, God lets them understand his law. They didn't have the un indwelling in the same way that you do afterwards, but the Holy Spirit still ministered. And they didn't have the law written in their heart, like it says, right. as a promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. But what they do have is a heart of flesh and not a right. heart of stone. If you have a heart of stone, it doesn't matter how many times you read the Bible. You'll never get it right. Right. Right? And so they're looking at him going, they're going, we're the people of God. And God is looking at him and going, no, you're all drunkards. You're all vomiting on yourself and you act like you know so much, but you're looking at the Bible and you're reading it. And I mean, you read some of the stuff that they do and they come up with and the way they handle the scriptures. Stuff in the Midrash and stuff in the different, right, in the different. Right. I mean, like, for instance, how many times in the Bible is there genealogies that go by male heads, right? Every genealogy does in the Bible. Well, they look at Ezra. You know, in, in Nehemiah 13, where it says that to put away the wives and their children. So they say it's all based on who your mother is and has nothing to do with the father. So there's like a hundred genealogies, and they reject all of that for this two verses where they're basically putting away people that won't follow their father. And they go, therefore, the children are named after their mother, and they're of the line of their mother, even though nowhere in Scripture does it say that. But yet, that's that's this idea, right? Is that they keep reading it and they keep studying it and they keep coming up with things and they keep logically reasoning from it, and it's all false. It's all wrong. It's all confused because, yeah, they don't have any knowledge. But they go, oh yeah, we're figuring it out. We're figuring it out. 
or with stammering lips in another tongue, he will speak to this people. So this is the context. The context is Israel, Judah, received the word of God in Hebrew, and they said it's impossible to understand it. You can't grow with it. You can go a little bit. We we'll keep working at it. We keep working at it. We keep working at it. We'll understand. And God looks at him and goes, I wrote it to you in your language, and you can't understand it. So therefore, I'll show you that you're unbelievers. I will show you that the day has come where I'm going to separate the remnant from all the unbelievers. That's the day of the Lord, right? And so he's saying, I'll show you that that's happening when people come and speak to you with other tongues. And that's the sign of tongues. It's to testify that Israel was filled with unbelief, that Judah was filled with unbelief, except for the remnant. And it was about separating a remnant. And yet the Pentecostal churches want this to be the sign that they have the Holy Spirit. And it's like the opposite reason from why God sent the tongues. He sent the tongues to go, you're not believers. You're so sure you're the people of God and you're wrong. With stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. God gave his word. He gave his law not to be cruel. He gave his law to be a blessing. He gave his law so that the weary would have rest. Right? He gave the law so that the promised land would be the land flowing with milk and honey. He gave his law to be a blessing, to be a refreshing, so that people could live together in a way that would cause a prosperous society. Read Deuteronomy 28 about how much prosperity they would be if they would just listen to the law of God. But they wouldn't listen. And so God says, you know, they would not hear. So he gives it to them in Hebrew. They speak Hebrew, and they refuse to hear it. That's why he speaks to them in a different tongue, because they wouldn't hear the Hebrew. Yet they would not hear, but the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and caught. He did it so that people would know that Judah was not the people of God anymore. That's what happened at Pentecost. That's why it was sent, so the people would go they're not the people of God. They had the Bible in Hebrew, and they said, we can't understand anything. And so God said, you're not my people. You don't have my word. You have it written on pieces of paper. You don't have it in your heart and in your mind. And so that's what tongues are to show. That's why they're assigned for unbelievers. That's the argument Paul's making. That's why he quotes here. It's translated somewhat different with other tongues rather than with stammering tongues. But but that's what he's quoting from, so that people look and they go, you're filled with unbelief. You know, when you started the discussion with that the only way you get here is through a misunderstanding of eschatology, that's surprising because I don't, I, I don't read a whole lot of books that go to Acts 2 as a key passage for eschatology. And it is, right? But, but you know, you but you know, my argument. Was my oh, argument I, any I, good? I, I hear your argument, yeah. But, you know, I, on, on any side of the debate, there's not a lot of people who look at Acts 2 as being, oh, this is a key event about end times. Oh, it is in, it is in dispensationalism. I mean, I'm, I'm bringing this up because we, you know, I think we've just recently done an episode on dispensationalism. And 
it's really important to get if, if you don't understand, because the end of that passage is that they might fall and be snared. And the point of this is God was, the whole point of this period in here was for God to show the need for the Holy Spirit to come. It's to both show that Israel was not the people of God, that Israel was not. Israel going to, was always a type. They were always a picture. Right. And so, and there's, and so it's to set these things up so that when Pentecost happens, it's a really big deal. It's it's helpful to come to this and say that our misunderstanding of tongues, our misunderstanding of Acts 2 and the role that tongues play in Acts 2 is really framed by a bad view of what God's doing in history, a bad view of what God's doing with Israel, and a bad view of the way that the Holy Spirit comes into the world and changes things, the way that the Holy Spirit comes into the world, and all of a sudden there's something reigning in the world that is something like the way that sin reigned in the world. I mean, you know, you, you read those passages about in the Old Testament about sin grows like leaven, and then you get to the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit is the thing that's like leaven. A little bit of it starts spreading, and all of a sudden the world's different because of that. And we see that here at Acts 2, but in making it different, everything's different. I mean, in the, the tie into eschatology, I mean, in Isaiah 28, it's very clearly tied in because he's saying this is why he judges them. This is why he's rejecting them, right? And, you know, continuing, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we are in agreement. And the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. The reason they could hide themselves under under lies and under refuge is they, they had the word of God, right? The word of God, including the Old Testament, is the, the cern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If they wanted to know, they could have known. Right. But they didn't want to know. They wanted to make lies their refuge. They made a covenant with death. And so... They decided that they would reject what would give eternal life and that they would and understand it's they had a heart of stone. I'm not rejecting the need for the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, God can rightly judge them because he gave them the words of life and they refused them. They just said, who can understand this? And you, you hear this about, oh, we've made a covenant with death, and you think that that's hyperbole. But then you remember what they said in the New Testament when, when Jesus is on trial and they say, let his blood be on us and our children. They're making a covenant with death. And literally, they're making a covenant with death there. Right. I mean, and it's really, what's really interesting as you're saying this is I remember conversations we've had because you're talking about how the, the rabbis didn't understand. Gamaliel. Everybody gives Gamaliel props for saying, hey, if it's of God, leave it alone and it'll last. Remember what Jesus Christ, afterwards he's walking to the road, on the road to Emmaus and he comes with these guys and they sit there and they go, haven't you heard, where have you been that you haven't heard about this Jesus? Where have you been living under a rock? And then Jesus takes the Bible and explains to them what happened. Gamaliel couldn't do that. Gamaliel is the best scholar they had. And Gamaliel had no idea what the Old Testament was about. He watched everything happen in Jerusalem. He watched all of these things unfold. And all he could say was, you know, just leave it alone. Maybe it's of God. Maybe. It might be. And then his disciple, Paul, God gives him a heart of flesh, and all of a sudden he can go, this hmm. is what this means, and this is what this means, and this is what this means. He goes from killing, from holding the coach for those who kill Stephen to becoming just like Stephen. 
And so, I mean, th- I mean, you you have to bring these things together when you when you want to think about this. So to continue, right, just to make sure that we all recognize how much this ties to that proves that this day that was earlier is the day of Jesus Christ's resurrection and that that period immediately after. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. Right? God says, I'm going to set Israel as this thing that I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to set a cornerstone, Christ, the sure foundation. I'm going to set justice and righteousness as the measures of it so that you can measure off the cornerstone. In in the sign of this happening is the tongues. This isn't separate from the tongues. The tongues are the sign of that he set Christ is the sure foundation, the cornerstone. So when you think about later in Pentecost, when Peter says, you killed the Messiah, the fact that they just heard the tongues, if they knew that, do you understand why they'd go, men and brethren, what shall we do? The promise was, when you hear those tongues, you're going to be wiped out with an overflowing scourge. You're going to be destroyed. The covenant that you made to death is going to be wiped out. And so, of course, they're going to panic anybody, and these were the devout men, the ones that God opened their eyes to, right? But but when Peter says that, he's not speaking to people who have no idea. He's speaking to people that know this is the sign of the Messiah coming, and this is what happens to people who reject the Messiah. It's the stumbling block, the rock of offense, so that they can be captured and taken. And that's exactly what God promised, and that's what he ends up doing in 70 A.D., and so part of what you're saying here is if you get this wrong view about that, you start to take what the Holy Spirit was doing there and you start to make it into something completely different that we're going to we're going to keep doing in our churches. Right. In our churches, we're going to do this thing that was for unbelievers. And and compare that to what right, because there's two times where it happens. One, it happens at at Jerusalem, and then it also happens at Cornelius's house. Well, why would it happen at Cornelius's house? Well, this is about saying that you're going to destroy the people who were the people of God, and you're going to bring in other people, a different remnant. So guess what? It was sent to unbelievers. In the one case, it was sent to believers who thought or unbelievers who thought they were believers, which was the Jews. In the other case, it was sent to people who said, we're far off from the covenant of Israel. And God goes, no, you're you're close. The tongues are there to show they're part of the remnant, which is, you know, that's why Peter goes, you know, they received the Holy Spirit like we did. We're all one because that's basically what it talks about in Isaiah 28. And another passage that we're using because we're kind of tying it, like Jonathan said, to eschatology, that, that these things are pointing toward what God is doing in the world. Jeremiah 3.8, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. 
And so, and right after this, he goes on and he talks about how I'm going to take, you know, one from a city and two from a country. And, and he's talking about how, I mean, he's pointing towards this thing that's going on at Pentecost where he's divorced Israel. Israel, he's not, Israel is no, the, the nation of Israel is no longer the wife of God. Judah, which was separated off from her, he's divorced her as well. Well, he kind of does that when she kills when right. he comes to his own and his own and they, won't receive they him. Kill him, right? They, yeah, that, they, that kind of like ruins the whole relationship, the murdering right. of the husband, you know? And then there's this promise that yet from within that, we've been talking about within that remnant, I'm going to take, and this is pointing all the way back to Adam and Eve, where he's like, you know, from the, the, the seed of Eve, from, from Eve, Christ is taking from all the nations of the world and he's creating a bride and he's starting with Israel and he's been after, you know, from his death and his resurrection, He's been establishing the church. He's been he's beginning to create the church. He's beginning to do his work in the world from the work of his atonement that he's going to destroy sin and he's going to destroy the effects of sin and all these things are are starting you know with his death and his resurrection and there's a huge part of it that happens that these things are happening at Pentecost as well. And so, if you start with the idea that God is going to restore Israel and that all of history, the primary thing about history is physical, the nation of Israel, the descendants of physical Jacob. Then all of a sudden you look at this and Pentecost is a blip on the map, right? It's it's a parenthesis to use the, the dispensational term, is that it's just a side thing that he goes back to the original. Well, that gives you a really different view of it than if you look at the tongues as the certificate of divorce. Because that's effectively what the tongues were. He's saying to them, you are no longer my bride. He writes Isaiah 28 saying, when you see this, you'll know you're no longer my bride. And then they see it. And so, you know, it, it ties to this idea. And so then all of a sudden tongues have, if you look at tongues as being like a certificate of divorce, then all of a sudden when you say, oh, let's have tongues in our churches, all of a sudden you go, wait, well, why? <laughs> As opposed to when you're at Cornelius' house, there's a real sense that when you see the tongues, it's like Israel is not my people anymore. So other people can join with it. But So I could see people, you know, if there's any tongue speakers still listening, um, I could see them. <laughs> then they haven't been paying attention. <laughs> well, I could see them saying, well, it's all well and good, all this you're talking about Israel and this, that, and the other, and Israel's no longer God's people and you know the tongues were a sign of this on pentecost but how can you say that the tongues don't have a place in the church when paul in first corinthians 14 is saying here's how you do it you have the interpreter you do two or three um where it doesn't it doesn't sound like he's saying why do you have tongues it sounds like he's saying here's how you do it correctly but he also is very clear right which is where we started which is tongues are signed for unbelievers so why do you have tongues in a church well you have tongues in a church for unbelievers so sure, if you think you're going to edify the body by having tongues that's the wrong way to think about it because the point of tongues He's very clear. The point of tongues is tongues are for unbelievers and prophecy is for believers. But you're also making an assumption there that, I mean, we could point to any of our other pockets. You're making the assumption that the church is for believers and not for unbelievers too. And when you first come to an environment, you're going to have a mix, right? And so then there's a place for tongues. But as the church matures, 
the idea of desiring tongues is a really big problem because what every church should desire is not to hear from somebody who cannot speak in their native language. They should desire for the church to be mature so it has its own teachers. So there's times when Paul goes into the – when Paul's at Ephesus and he's speaking in Ephesian, whatever the language of Ephesus was, and most of them had their own local language. Well, him having the gift of tongues more than any man, he spoke to them in Ephesian. And that was a great blessing to them, but that was also a transition because at some point when you when he meets with the elders of Ephesus and Miletus, I hope that they're preaching in their churches – in their native language, and they don't need somebody to come and speak to them with tongues anymore because that's what the church is supposed – the church should desire to move away from tongues, not move towards tongues. Wouldn't you expect that a lot of churches would have a lot of unbelievers in them? Like our church has a lot of children. And what's it. the purpose of speaking in tongues? There's no purpose to speak in tongues. Well, the reason. <laughs> The reason, though, that they want to speak in tongues, what the Bible says is that prophecy is for edifying and speaking in tongues is for unbelievers. Well, those children, when I speak in English, they can understand me, at least some of what I say. And so having somebody that's a Spanish speaker come and have it translated, why would you do that? The only reason that you do that is because you don't have any English speakers that actually understand the word of God. So the idea of desiring tongues, is there a place for tongues? Sure. In the maturing of the church, there's a place for tongues. But every church should desire to get away from that. Every church should should desire to, to grow people that actually understand the scripture, that can actually speak in their native language, and that you don't need tongues. What's the purpose for tongues? I mean, and, and I think one of the things, like I'm not going to try to reestablish, because we actually spent in that episode on translation talking about this for a while. I think we actually live pretty far down the path of where Christ's kingdom has actually changed the world in a lot of ways. Like you were talking about, like we just don't even realize how many languages there used to be. We don't real. I mean, there's there's so many fewer languages today. There, I mean, we've talked about how there's you know there was no such thing as German. There was no such thing as French at one point. Uh, having a language just called French that you could go into a country and expect people to be able to understand you. This is, I mean. There's been so much that's been pushed back and dealing with because of the translation of the gospel and all these things. And so there's this part of it where when we get here now, it's almost like conspiracy theories. Because of ignorance, we have this ignorance of the world that once was. People go, they're always talking about speaking in nonsense tongues. And you go, no, they've been talking. This is how this is the this is the problem that the apostles faced is to go into a place where you would have a 10 different groups of languages and you had to, and the gospel needed to come to them. And how was that going to happen? And God in his mercy allowed Paul, who was the, you know, the main missionary, right? He could speak in more tongues than any man. He was able to speak to them so that unbelievers could be called in to the gospel. And so, so now, so, uh, and I think this is another thing that would be worth talking a little bit more about, um, the idea of what, when people are speaking in tongues, you know, in the Bible, are they speaking in a different language, like a, in, like a different, like a language that you could go to the store and buy a dictionary for, or are they speaking in, you know, 
Well, I mean, there's some verses that people reference where there's a reference made to new tongues. There's a reference made to uh, the tongues of angels. So is that what they're, well, what are they speaking in? And how, I mean, and are we saying they're always speaking in a language where you can go buy a dictionary for it? Well, and, and this is, you know, we use the term tongue in English to mean a language. When we say tongues, we don't mean that it's just somebody babbling. But yet, we all of a sudden think that if it's a biblical use, it could have been translated language and it would mean the same thing. And this idea that they're speaking in some other, something that nobody can understand or one person can say they can interpret. Well, in the same passage in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. This is one of the reasons that God is saying you don't have tongues there. In this idea that you're speaking and you're having people speak and nobody can understand what they're saying, that it's just babbling, well, that's that's ridiculous. That's completely contrary to why Paul is saying that you would you would order your church. It's about order. It's not about confusion. And so somebody going up there and going blah 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 blah. I mean, that's confusion. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing too. Is like there is a difference between just babbling in a language that even if you don't know the language, if you're someone who understands linguistics, you can understand whether it's a language or whether it's babbling. And and so, if, you know, you why, why can't people, why can't linguistics look at videos from Pentecostal church and say, wow, this is so interesting. This is a language we've never identified before. It has all the markers of being a real language, but yeah, we've never identified it. You know, why can't you send that video to people in other churches, other Pentecostal churches, and have them interpret it and have the interpretations match? But you know, it, it, it's the, the reality is it's just made up nonsense, and then other people say, "Oh, I'll interpret it," and just spout off nonsense in English. Sort, sort of like hieroglyphics. Everybody right. knew so, so, hieroglyphics yeah. were a language until, but we didn't know what it meant until the Rosetta Stone was. Right. Sort of like how Joseph Smith translated some hieroglyphics when he was just doing the tongue-speaking translation. But then later people actually translated it, and he was lying, like the Pentecostals do. They're translating their tongues. But, I mean, it's really important when we think about it, right, is there's this idea of if somebody interprets. Well, Paul says, don't speak in tongues unless you know what you're saying. Now, when I go places, like if I go to Nigeria, I haven't mentioned that this episode yet. He's not. I mean, it's very appropriate. <laughs> but when I go to Nigeria, frequently I'll have somebody stand beside me and interpret. Well, if I just spoke and they couldn't understand my accent, I shouldn't speak. But we think that interpretation means that you're just coming up and that the person interpreting can say whatever he wants to say you're saying. Well, no, that means nothing. That's garbage. That's confusion. The only time is if the interpreters are interpreting into a language that they can understand and they can understand what you're saying. But if you don't understand what you're saying, shut up. Nobody should ever say anything in church if they don't understand what they're saying because they don't know who it's from. They pretend like they do. But it says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Who in the world would stand up if they have any fear of God and go blah, 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 and let somebody else say, this is what he's saying? There's like no fear of God in that situation at all. God says, test the spirit, and you can't even tell if the words are coming from a demon when you say it. 
You have no idea if you don't know what the words mean. So why would you ever speak them? And the, and the only reason that this is allowed is because you start off with this false premise of what it was. You start to create these false rules around it. And then you go, apparently, sometimes God just sends, God just beams down to a person a language and somebody else, and he beams down to someone else, the ability to interpret that language. And the one person stands up and speaks it. And the other person goes, oh, I understand that particular thing. And that's how God communicates the message to his church, which you see nowhere in scripture ever. And Paul actually has a term for that <coughs> in 1 Corinthians 14, 23 through 25. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, well, now let's say that you are out of your mind. But if all prophesy an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. There's wow. this idea that you just go there and you just go blah, 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 and somebody else talks and somebody walks in. Are they going to think you're out of your mind? Of right. course they are. That's what Paul's saying. Everybody's going to think you're out of your mind. And then Paul goes on and goes, God is not the God of confusion. That idea is just so confused. It's so ridiculous that somebody who knows nothing about God walks into that situation and they go, these people are nuts. Right. And and one thing, too, is, I mean, there's really basic instruction saying you need to have interpretation. So are there Pentecostal churches out there that speak in tongues and have very strict rules that you must have it interpreted? They do, but they are interpreting a language that neither of them knows. So they just say whatever they want to say. What you should do is you should write down ahead of time what the thing said. And first of all, the interpretation is if I can't speak the language, not if I can when Paul goes into the church at Ephesus, why wouldn't he speak in Ephesians? Why would he speak in Hebrew and have somebody translate for him? And so you just look at it and this idea that, that Paul went to these places and he got these languages so that he could speak in a language that people didn't know so that they could then translate to a language that people knew that he knew. No, I mean, that's all, that's all ridiculous. That's all confusion. That's all disorder. That's all contrary to what Christ came to do and what Christ came to produce in the world. And so if you think about it and you think of like Paul walking in, right? Because there's a passage like 1 Corinthians 14, 2 through 4. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. How are you edified? You're only edified through knowledge. You're not edified through not having any idea, not having, you know, blah, blah, blah does not edify. And so when it says for no one understands him, it's not saying he doesn't understand. It's saying nobody he's talking to understands. So think of the Paul at Ephesus again. So Paul at Ephesus, if he was going to teach, what would be the most natural language for him to teach about the Old Testament from? For him? Hebrew. Yeah. Hebrew. But if he goes to Ephesus and he starts speaking in Hebrew, who's going to be edified by it? The, the preacher, only person who understands is God <laughs> besides well, him. <laughs> he's preaching to him, but he himself, right? Because when you preach a message, sure. you actually build up yourself. So who would be edified? If right. Paul went and preached in Hebrew, who would be edified? Paul. Paul would. What would it do for the church? Nothing. 
He speaks mysteries is what he this speaks says. mysteries and, and think of the mysteries Paul could have spoken from the Hebrew, but yet he doesn't. He speaks in whatever their nat- native tongue was because he's trying to edify the church. But the person, so the, the Spaniard that walks in to a church and he starts speaking in Spanish, he might be thinking of things of God. And, you know, I, there's lots of times when I preach that I come to a deeper understanding about something. But he wouldn't help the church at all. And Paul says, don't do that. But to say that he could be edified by speaking a language he doesn't understand, sorry, in verse 4, it says he edifies himself. If he doesn't understand the language, he's not edified. You you look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 says that how is it edified? He gives teachers. He gives apostles. He gives prophets so that they can edify the church. They edify the church through teaching of knowledge. If you don't know what you're saying, you don't edify yourself. So the idea that no one understands includes the person speaking, that makes no sense because he wouldn't edify himself, which is what most Pentecostal churches do is that they have somebody who's interpreting and somebody who's saying something that they have no idea what they're saying, and yet somehow they think that's speaking in tongues. That's not speaking in tongues. Paul speaking Hebrews at the church in Ephesus that would be speaking in tongues, and he's not allowed to do that unless there's somebody that can translate the Hebrew. But if he can speak in the Ephesian language, he should speak in the Ephesian language. And that's what it's talking about in First Corinthians 14, not the blah, blah, blah garbage. The blah, blah, blah garbage is almost literally what it says in the Hebrew in Isaiah 28. I just have to say, you're doing a horrible job of imitating people speaking in tongues. I don't know. I've heard <laughs> some. take a stab at it? I do not. <laughs> I mean, and, and this changes the way you think about the purpose for these things. I mean, because it, I mean, it's like, if, if you- In want- the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 14 is about one thing, desire prophecy and not speaking in tongues. Right. And I mean, and so there's this part of it where it's like, are there, could there be a time where you have someone in your church who has something that would be worth them saying to the people and they don't speak the language, but there's someone who can translate for them. That can happen. I mean, when, when you go to Nigeria, you go there to preach and you have to have someone to translate and you, and, and you're, and it's painful, right? You know what I mean? It's painful. Not, it's, it's slow. It's not efficient. I mean, it's, and so it has to be worth it to do it. Right. And there are times where people do it to show off. You know what I mean? There are times where somebody speaks language and they, I mean, I've been, I've occasionally been in times where someone spoke in a language, they had someone else translate and the person who spoke could speak English. Absolutely fine. Right. You know what I mean? And so there's this part we of it had where somebody at a, at a prayer meeting, all of a sudden he starts praying in Spanish because he was showing off because he was a missionary to some. Sp- it's like and nobody 90%, else in the church. Could I understand. mean, there was one or two, but he could speak English. He was an American, so why is he speaking Spanish? Nothing to do with edifying the believers. Nothing to do with building the church. It was all about building his ego. And so I mean, it changes things. I mean, could you have a time where there's a person in a prayer meeting who? is praying and it's worth having them pray and having someone translate because their prayers either either the church needs to be edified by knowing the things that they're struggling with and that they're and could there be times where that's going on there could be times for that you know i mean there's a real reason Um, for that there is no place to pray where you don't understand you know because you know you go to a lot of these countries that are very affected by pentecostalism and what they think is that you're supposed to pray and keep praying until 
this language bursts out of you that you don't understand, and that's when you're drawing near to God. And Paul goes, don't pray unless you understand what you're saying. And Paul says, for the crowd that's with you, if they don't understand what they're saying, how can they say amen? How can they join with you in that prayer? So don't pray in a tongue. There's no reason to pray in a tongue because they can't join with you. If you... If the only way you can express it is in Hebrew, go pray by yourself in Hebrew. There's no reason to do that in the meeting of the church if nobody understands Hebrew. That's that's what God, Paul's saying, and that's what that's what God's saying through Paul is the church is about understanding. But in Pentecostalism, what does the shift happen? Because we talked about the eschatological shift, right, is that they're exalting Israel. And it really, the heart of it, is, it comes back to emotion. And so they're not exalting understanding. 1 Corinthians 14 is about exalting understanding. They exalt emotion. They exalt emotion everywhere. And the whole point is, go back to Isaiah 28, right? Gave you my word in Hebrew, and you went, oh, I can't understand this. Who can understand this? This is impossible to understand. You're like a drunkard reading it that's so busy vomiting that you can't understand what's being said. And And they go, we don't need to have any understanding. We just have this emotional thing that all of a sudden I prayed long enough that this these words burst out of me, and this is what's pleasing to God. And the whole point of 1 Corinthians 14 is understanding, understanding, understanding. That's what builds the church. And, and part of one of the things, because you shift to emotion, one of the other things that ends up being driven by is fear. Because one of the things you'll hear a lot of people say, and I've heard this for years, is you pray in a secret language so Satan can't hear you. So you're speaking to God, and Satan can't come in and intercept that and know what you're saying to God. But what they've forgotten is, is what is the, I mean, the power of God is that salvation, you know, where does salvation come by? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. What, you know, what, is, what was the benefit that Israel had? They had the oracles of God. And so understand the power of God is the truth of Scripture and preaching it so that people can hear it and understand it, not hiding it from pretend. Well, hiding it. God says, if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with me. If you walk in darkness, if you're hiding things, you don't have fellowship with right. me. And they're going, the only way we can have fellowship with God, the only way for our prayers to be answered is to walk in darkness and hide it. Right. That's just a rejection of the nature of God. That's just a rejection of what he's doing in the world. And it's all these things that they come up with that are, that are explicitly against Scripture. Just like this idea that tongues are great. When, God, when Paul writes, tongues are given for unbelievers. I mean, and let's and let's. I want to make sure people don't misunderstand. When they when you go somewhere to a place that doesn't understand your language and you speak tongues, it's not a curse on you for speaking it, and it's not a curse on them for speaking it. When you're saying it, it's hearing for, it, you mean for, right for for them hearing it, for them translating it, for people translating. It, you're not saying any of those things. They're none of those things are bad things in and of themselves. They're because unbelief exists in the world is part well, of the I reason think, why that's continuing. I actually think that you have a church that, like I go to Nigeria and it's I say this all the time. Not, when, not necessarily. Oh, right, that's what right. I'm saying. When you go to another country and you speak. Oh, absolutely right. not. That's fine, right? Yes, absolutely. Because sometimes you can get an audience because you're you're a foreigner. And so if that's the way that you can preach the gospel to somebody. Or because nobody so else hit. there knows the gospel. Right. right. But And I'm talking about if you go to a country where – where you see that they have a lot of people that come in and they translate all the time. I mean, one of the things that I do when I go is I go, do you understand this is, this is a sign of judgment on you, the fact that you have me here and translate? Because 
the church should only get edified at half the rate because it takes so long to translate. This is a huge waste of time. But it's a huge waste of time because you're failing to do what you're supposed to be doing. Because it says very clearly in Hebrews 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So a church that wants tongue speakers coming in, they're basically saying we're too immature to actually understand the word of God. And they should really that should really cause them to be afraid because Isaiah 28 says, I gave you my word in Hebrew and you wouldn't read it. You have a church that named the language. Now in Nigeria it's English, it's Hausa, whichever language you want, Yoruba, Igbo, they all of those have a Bible in their language. But yet, they need people to come and teach them again the basic oracles of God. It's because of unbelievers. And, and even years when you see that, church. I mean, like a lot of the places you go into, years they'll ago, go in Nigeria, great. they'll go, You're teaching, and it reminds us of the stuff that our fathers, that we remember our, our fathers knowing. Have. And so there's this part of it where they go, We've forgotten it, and there's not a teacher among us who can teach it. And like you said, so I mean, so even then, when you look at tongues, you shouldn't be going, Oh, wow, somebody came from a foreign country to speak to us. You should be going, this is really a sign of our failure because tongues are pretty much a sign of failure unless they are truly an unwitnessed community. Paul talks about how you know he only went to territory that had not been plowed by anybody else before. Well, he's a good one to get the gift of tongues more than any other man, right? Because he's going to unplowed territory. And so, but most of us go to territory that's plowed. And if you're going to a place where, where you bring in foreigners to preach, that's that's a sign of unhealth in the church. So what about like reading Calvin? Because I mean, and I'm not saying in the church. I'm saying like at home because you can't read Calvin. I mean, most of us can't read Calvin without some gift of tongues coming into play. <laughs> right. And I, I think that's perfectly fine because it's not in the meeting of the church. And there's a difference between the preaching of the word and even building a systematic theology. I mean, I do think that they're different and there's those it's very different, a meeting of the church and not the meeting of the church. First Corinthians 14, he's very explicitly talking about the meeting of the church. Do I think it's wrong to read somebody that, that has to be translated? Well, no, that's how you get built up, and that's how the church still has unity. It just doesn't need to happen in the congregation where most people aren't but, at but that level of depth. Calvin in French if you don't know French. I mean, like, you know what I mean? It's like if right. I – I mean, I can look I, – Spanish is phonetic. If you you can put Spanish text in front of me and I can read it all day, it's it's very phonetic. I, I mean I can read French. It. They just throw away and, half right, the letters I mean, and you I have mean, the but, right but pronunciation. I'm saying, if you put Spanish, I can read. And I'm not saying it will sound fantastic, but it won't sound bad. But there's no point in me reading Spanish. You know what I mean? I mean, we, I think even when you're talking about reading Calvin, it's not. There's no problem with something that's been translated into English because you've removed the tongues. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Is there's right. a part of it where I mean, you've actually you've it's been dealt and in the with end, in it's an sense. English speaker that's writing it in a real sense, right. even though he's using it based on what Calvin wrote. He still is an English writer that's writing it, right? And so that's what I mean. Is I mean, it's I mean, I just you know, I just I don't want to confuse. It's not like because something was in a language at one point and it's been translated. I, the point here is not to look at it with a oh, I came from a different language at one point. I mean, is there is one spirit across all right every tribe every because tongue, all every nation. the Bible that most of us read was translated and, and we 
we and there's a real part of it where I mean, otherwise everybody has to learn Hebrew and everybody has to learn Greek, and and God didn't seem to say that that was what was fundamentally necessary. So I mean, tongues the the fact that tongues but exist so, in the world are a great blessing to deal with the fact that languages were confused, but in the church they don't have much. There's there's not a place in the church unless there's unbelief in the church, and and you're dealing with that unbelief. And prophesying is not writing. Prophesying is preaching. I mean, that's the the more direct connection is the idea of making a proclamation. We've kind of been raising some of the objections and some of the issues that, you know, kind of like that people would say about, well, what is it, you know, that that kind of Pentecostalism frames the way it it builds its practices of tongues around. But there's some way I don't know that we've really dealt with. I mean, I don't know that we've said, you know, like, in 1 Corinthians 14.5, Paul said you should desire to speak in tongues. And how do you deal with how do you deal with that? I mean, I'll read the passage. I mean, I, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. It's pretty obvious, right? I mean, the whole point of the people who say, oh, Paul wishes you could speak in tongues— Paul makes the point that the reason to speak in tongues is so that it can be prophet, so that you can prophesy. Right. And the goal is for the church to be edified, and the church is edified through knowledge. It's not edified through somebody going blah blah blah. If they can speak English, speak English. That's how to edify the church. And so the when he says, "I wish you all spoke tongues," I wish I spoke tongues. I mean, I wish I could speak Hausa. I wish I could speak Yoruba. I wish I never had to be translated because it's it's. It's very difficult to be translated. It cuts the flow. It does all kinds of other things. It's very hard to edify the body with translation. It just is. I mean, it's not impossible, certainly, if people don't know, but but it would be much better if I could get people that understood things well enough to be able to preach so I never had to in a different language or that God gave me the gift of tongues, which he has not. He definitely has not up to this point. But and so when you look at it, you know, this idea that you wish, uh, sure, you should wish you could speak in tongues. It doesn't mean that you wish you could babble like a fool, like a madman. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you should wish to be able to speak in tongues so that you could edify the body, which means that you have to speak with understanding to edify the body. And, and you think about putting it in context. He's writing the letter to the church in Corinth because they're disordered on every front. And he's really trying to bring order back to a church that doesn't know how to practice church discipline, doesn't know how to take communion, doesn't understand about women speaking in church, doesn't understand tongues, go down the list. And he's just hitting them on every front. You need to bring order here. And and that that one verse from later on in 14, I think it's 23, where he says, if a whole church had people speaking in tongues, an outside observer is going to come in and say, you're out of your minds. And I remember the story you told about how you were fighting. Last time you were in Nigeria, you had a Q&A session with a bunch of people, and you're talking about this subject because they always want to talk about tongues. I was talking about prayer, and they said, well, tongues are the central part of prayer. It's like, wow. Everything goes back to that. So you're talking to them, and and you keep coming back, and, and you quoted that verse and silenced the room. It's like that got through. Oh, the Bible now, says. Another specific question that they asked was, so what do you call what we're doing then? Because if this if speaking in tongues is speaking in languages and and you know we're being moved and we're doing this, so what do you call it? And then I read that verse and that silenced the room. <laughs> it's called being out of your mind. 
and and you get to that and you say okay so so any any role that tongues have in the church has got to be governed by order it has to be something that's bringing order it has to be increasing order paul would not be it saying has to be building right part of that. right yes. and paul wouldn't paul would not be introducing this idea as something that you do in churches if it's not something that's increasing order and the point of, of tongues, like we've been talking about, tongues are good for first contact evangelism. It's good for reaching the lost. It's not good. It's not a sign of a healthy, mature church if you have a whole bunch of people speaking in tongues. And therefore, if that's the case, then it's not something that a church should be desiring to have more of within the church. Maybe the church desires, hey, you know what? We need people who speak in tongues so we can have missionaries. Right, or but, maybe even missionaries to a local area where the gospel But not gone. so that we can have a better worship service here in this local congregation. That's not the point of tongues. And the point that, that Paul makes repeatedly is the point of the church is to edify. It's to build up believers, and tongues don't do that. Tongues are the slowest way to do that. Sometimes I go, I get translated, and hopefully the people are built up. But, man, that's inefficient. You know, even like what we've started in Nigeria was to try to train pastors so that you get pastors that have a deep enough understanding that can speak in their native language. That would be much better than me going. But yet the church instead goes, we want people speaking in tongues. No, we should we should want there to be no need for people to speak in tongues. That means the church has matured. I do want to go back and talk some more about prayer because a lot of people think that, you know, especially in the Pentecostal thing, is that there's this – this idea that that you get moved enough that you that these words come out that you don't understand that's satanic and people need to know that god is a god of understanding god wrote his word he is the word he's about knowledge he's not about you know you burst out in these words that you don't understand that's god says yeah, for the rest of the people that they can't say amen unless they understand what you're saying. So don't pray in a tongue. And yet yet we think somehow this is higher level of spirituality. No, it's a higher level of rebellion to God where you think you're heard by your many words. So almost all the people that do this, they pray for, I mean, three, four, five, six hours. And then all of a sudden they go, my prayer time is now finished because I babbled like a fool. We just need to recognize just how, how terrible that is and how so contrary you know, in, in Romans 8, it talks about how the Spirit groans with the utterances that when we don't pray as we ought to pray. Well, if we're supposed to pray the way the Holy Spirit prays, we're supposed to understand what he's saying. You should never pray anything without understanding. You should never pray words and then go, amen, when you have no idea what you said. Because are those words from God or are those words from Satan? How can you tell? You can't tell if you, know, if you don't know what you said. And this is a very this is a very common practice in various countries in the world, and it is a it is truly a terrible thing, because people are held up and they're held up to be these are the godly men. It's like the people who foretell nobody bothers to check if it's true. The people who heal nobody bothers to check if it's true. The tongues nobody bothers to check if it's true. And then you have these people pray and they set this babble that you have no idea. Nobody can check. And they go, these are godly men. That is not the sign of a godly man. The sign of a godly man is somebody who loves God. The love of God is to keep his commandments. Keeping his commandments requires knowledge. That's the sign of a godly man. 
I mean, when you say that it's satanic, I think people should understand it's satanic potentially in two ways. One is either you really are in communion with a spirit which is not of God, which is an evil spirit, or like you said, it's rebellion, which is as a sin of witchcraft. It's disorder. It is the author of where God is not the author of confusion. And so, I mean, it is confusion, which is satanic. And so either way, it's, it's a satanic thing. Right. Or the Bible also says that, you know, that's earthly, sensual, demonic. Right. And for the people that are doing that, for, the people, or even the people that just have have sat there and prayed for, you know, people pray for like hours. I mean, like people were like when when that crowd was shut down and became silent. I mean, people were talking about how they prayed for hours, and like all of them were going, "Yes, we all do this. We pray for hours, and then finally we're at the the peak of drawing near to God, and we start babbling in some, and it's like you're not drawing near to God. You don't. You have to." You have to pray with understanding. You don't know what you're drawing near to. But what it is is sensual because you've spent that many hours doing it. It is earthly. It right. is sensual. And so, therefore, it is demonic. Yep. One of the things that's really important to deal with, and I think we'll probably do another episode at some point in talking about spiritual gifts and how to think about spiritual gifts. But when you say that Paul had Paul was gifted with, with the gift of tongues more than any other man, this didn't mean that it was always this magical thing, like you said, where Paul had no idea what he was saying, that God gave Paul the ability to learn languages. And that from Paul's perspective, when that Paul could pick up languages really quickly, and that that was a gift that God gave him, and that it, it wasn't like he had no idea how it was going on or what was going on, that he could he could hear someone speak and he could begin to and he could begin to speak to them very, very quickly. And that's a that is a way of thinking about spiritual gifts, which is goes against the babbling sort of thought. Well, when you think of the gift of tongues, and if you think that that Paul doesn't have any idea what he's saying, so so Paul goes into to a city like Laodicea or wherever he goes, and they're speaking a very local dialect. Like most people spoke a very local dialect, it was a lot harder to travel. Usually, only the elite would have the common languages. It would be a local language. And he walks in there, and he's going to evangelize those people. How do you evangelize those people? Not by saying, even speaking Laodicean, where you don't know what you're saying. You have to know what you're saying. When Paul says he has the gift of language more than any, or the gift of tongues more than any other man, it wasn't that he could just pronounce words. He had to know the language. He had to be able to say, this is what I'm saying when I say this. Because otherwise, what good is it? It's useless. And so Paul, when he goes to these cities and you read it about, first he goes to the Jews and then he goes to the Gentiles. This happens over and over and over as he goes through on his missionary journeys. Well, when he goes to those Gentiles, when he goes to the synagogue, he could speak Hebrew. And a lot of them would understand, although my guess is a lot of times he didn't speak Hebrew because they wouldn't necessarily know Hebrew that well. It would be like going into a Roman Catholic church. Hebrew maybe than they would than may, they might be right. able to read it but not speak it. And he would walk in there and he would be able to talk in their language. That's what it meant having the gift of tongues. And when we read about tongues, we forget that we've seen this in the church for a thousand years because this is really common, right? After about four hundred, everybody started to preach in Latin. How many people knew Latin? Right. The priest did, and nobody else knew Latin. The rich. The, the well-educated, rich did, but right. not, after, not for very long. Sure. And then it dies out. Well, that's exactly what it's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, too, is that they stand up in front and they spoke in Latin. Who did they edify when they spoke tongue. in an unknown tongue? They were the only one who understood. 
And we look at it, and we had this example in the church for a thousand years of rebellion, right? Clear rebellion against 1 Corinthians 14.2. And now we want to make it about babbling and voices instead of saying, no, this is one of the reasons that the Roman Catholic Church became the Roman Catholic Church is because the people stopped edifying the body. All they did is speak in Latin. So all they did was build up themselves, and they didn't build up the body. And so you look at it, and we— we act like these things aren't judgments that God has judged before. He judged the Jews. He judges the Roman Catholics. And and he judges, he's judging the Pentecostals because he puts his spirit where they don't actually want to hear from God. You're back to Acts 20, or you're back to Isaiah 28, where they have the word of God, but they don't want to hear the word of God. So because of that, they go to tongues. And it's a sign of judgment because of unbelief. And I mean, you started off in the blurb kind of saying there's a lot of debate about whether tongues have ceased. And this is why, well, I mean, this is this is why the question of cessationism, and we're going to, like I said, I think we'll do other episodes talking about some of this in more depth, but this is why it's more complicated than that. Because do you say that God giving someone the ability to learn languages quickly has completely ceased? Has that ended? I mean, is that, and that starts being a lot more complicated. At what point does it become than, a miracle? Right. Right. Because that's, that's What's one of the, the hardest things is on that spectrum from the person who studies studies a language for 10 years and then he can speak the language versus somebody that, you know, Paul, he had the gift more than any man. Maybe he could just walk into a city and hear people speak and all of a sudden he can understand the language. Where on that spectrum is the miracle? And the answer is we know it was a curse at the Tower of Babel. So the whole spectrum is a miracle. Right. You're saying you're saying that the that the, the person who spends the ten years to of do the it. language, the the creation of the different languages was a curse of the Tower of Babel. And it's so, a miracle that God has reversed it at all. Right. But I think you the way that you set it up earlier, when you talked about the the Pentecostal who believes in something magical happening there with the speaking of tongues, that's a that's a useful way to think about the entire nature of the debate. If you put the the Pentecostals on one side and the cessationists on the other the unfortunate part about that debate is they've kind of agreed on the terms. Right. They've agreed on the nature of the thing, the nature of the tongues, that that it was some magical thing that was happening there. And the cessationists say, oh, no, that's no longer happening. And the Pentecostals say, yes, it is. And we're coming in saying, you, you're setting the whole thing up wrongly. You're misunderstanding. You're meeting them on their terms as opposed to going, right. let's go back to Scripture, let's establish the terms, and then let's come back and go. Because otherwise goes back to what you said is you can end up not seeing the miracle of God. You right. can end up not seeing the work of God in the world and not giving him glory where he so greatly deserves it. And if the world does not declare, what does it say? The whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And if that, if the church doesn't cause that to happen, there's a problem. And so I think some of this is we need to go back to scripture and we need to let our thinking change, let our mind be conformed. And then we come back to these things and we go, they're just wrong. I don't need to debate with them in the way that they're wrong. I need to debate with them and change and show that they're wrong. And I think that's really key. And the big problem is the church has shifted over the last few hundred years, a couple hundred years at least, has shifted from saying we need to know more about God to we need to have a feeling. And as long as you go with the feeling – tongues promote that and push that forward the solution to it and a lot of the cessationists aren't going we're all about feeling but in the end they accept that it's all about feeling because they accept the the basis of the argument 
instead of saying, let's understand what's actually being talked about here. Let's understand these passages. And people don't do that. They want to argue about things that are obscure instead of just saying, well, Paul said it's for unbelievers. Why do you have it in your churches? That's a really simple thing. And I've talked to thousands of Pentecostals, and none of them can give me an answer to that question. When you say, Paul says clearly in Scripture, this is for unbelievers, why do you have it in your churches? And none of them can give an answer because the scripture's clear. It's not like it's uh it's not like it's confused. It's clear. It's crystal clear. And you knock that out and you start knocking out prophecy and you start knocking out the uh what was the and other then you one? Start uh, to, the healing. I mean you start yeah, you start and then you start going, wait a minute. Who really we, is Israel? Right. And then you go, What is what does it mean in Romans nine six where Paul says not all of Israel is Israel? Because it does tie to their eschatological view that drives it. And then we start to, and we can get back to where we really understand what the Holy Spirit came to do and to glorify the Holy Spirit as God, because the church shouldn't be scared to talk about the Holy Spirit as God. And God says, right, the unity of the church is in the, the knowledge of who God is, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's where we get unity of the Spirit. And that requires edification. That requires understanding. That requires building the knowledge. The way that you keep all these splinter groups and all this other stuff, the way you don't fix the problem is deal with tongues instead of dealing with what, how do you build up the understanding? And the church needs to get back to the business of building up the understanding, which we've lost for a few hundred years. And, and reformed and non-reformed, because the reformed love to read books a lot more than they love to read their Bible. And the answer is in the Bible. The books aren't inherently bad, but the answers are in the Bible, not in the books, because the books have errors. Every man has errors. The Bible doesn't. The Pentecostals want to argue that the, the sign of having the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. And there are some churches that basically they force you to, and they have classes on how to do it and all these other things. And just like we talked about not understanding tongues was because of a lack of knowledge, there's also a huge lack of knowledge about what it means to have the Holy Spirit and why God sent the Holy Spirit. God's actually very clear in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. The sign of having the Holy Spirit is you keep the statutes of God. You keep his judgments. You do them. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not prophesying. It's doing what God said, which is why the church needs to not worry about tongues and all this other stuff and get back to the business that it was given to by God, which is to edify the believers so that the believers understand the statutes of God. They understand the commandments of God so they can do them. The purpose of the church is to edify the believers for the work of the ministry. That's why God sent the Holy Spirit, so that people would do the ministry that they're supposed to be doing. They would be faithful servants of God. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.